All right, well, good morning. Uh, look, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 18. I'll give you a few moments to get there. Um, we're taking a, a break from our weekly verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Matthew um, with Pastor Israel. It's kind of a, a fun morning today. We, there's a bit of a role reversal where he's doing the music and I'm doing the preaching. It's not normally like that. Um, and I figured that today we would take a pause from uh, the verse-by-verse preaching through the book of Matthew and uh, we'll camp out in Acts chapter 18. Uh, before we dive into it, what do you say we pray? Yes? Uh, bow your heads, pray with me. Uh, Father, we come before you. We do not come before a man. We do not come before a man to, to merely hear me speak. Father, we come to you with our Bibles open because we expect that you will speak to us through your word. Not because of any eloquence of speech that proceeds from my mouth, but because of the power of your Holy Spirit that makes your word living and active and sharp. And so, Father, as we stand before you with our Bibles wide open, speak to us, we pray, for our good for our edification, but ultimately for your glory, that we would see your son Jesus as high as he truly is, as glorious and as excellent as he truly is. And so, Lord, with our Bibles open, we pray that you would also open our ears, soften our hearts, so that the seed of your word may take deep root and bear much fruit. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Acts, chapter 18, I'm just going to dive right into it. If you're curious to know where I'm going, I'm going all the way uh, to verse 11. This is not the entire uh, account of what happens uh, with Paul in the city of Corinth. There is a second part uh, that we um, will discover as you read through the book of Acts chapter 18. There is a second account, a part two, if you will, of Paul's encounter with the people in the city of Corinth. But we'll, we'll begin in verse 1, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and it begins like this. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, I want to make sure we're all on the same page because the text says, after this, Paul left Athens. Well, in our text this morning, this after this is immediately before chapter 18, obviously, where we find Paul in Athens. In fact, if you go really quickly in chapter 17, the tail end of Acts chapter 17, you'll find Paul, and the text says that he's actually all alone. Now, this is, this is interesting because up until this point, throughout the book of Acts and Acts chapter 17, Paul has his two friends, his close companions, and their names are Silas and Timothy, and they accompany him. They give him lots of support, uh, mutual friendship and edification, but in, in the city of Athens, they're not there, and Paul finds himself alone, and the text says that as he goes into the city, he's not struck by the architecture of the city of Athens. Though he could have been, the place was beautiful. It was known for his architecture and, and its high intellectual capacity, but that's not what struck Paul. The text says that when he walked into Athens all alone, he was provoked in his spirit by the idolatry that was there. And all of these people gathered around. They, they, they were these pseudo-philosophers. Uh, the text says that on several occasions, all they did was they just sat there and just talked about the latest nothing. I mean, they talked about absolutely everything and anything and nothing just to pass time. And so here's Paul, and he says, well, you know what? I've got a message. If you're willing to listen to anything, well, let me give this a shot. And so he goes to the city of Athens. He, he tries to preach and talk about Jesus, and immediately he's confronted with these people of the city of Athens, and they mock him. 
And they actually coin him with a very derogatory term. You can see that actually in verse 18 of chapter 17. They call him a babbler. What does this babbler have to say to us? It's very derogatory. This guy is immature. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Who does he think he is? What's he trying to say? And what Paul was really trying to do is he was preaching Jesus. Verse 18 actually says that in chapter 17. And the people, in some seemingly strange way, they seemed both resistant and intrigued at the same time. It's very strange. They're, they're resistant, you babbler, but hang on. I'm intrigued with what you have to say. And you get this sense, if you're reading the text, it's as though Jesus had been working on the hearts of some of the people in the city of Athens. And they're not quite sure yet what to make of Paul's preaching. So quite interestingly, they take Paul and they bring him to the place called the Areopagus. If you have an old King James Version, um, good for you. Uh, The place, the Areopagus, is called Mars Hill. And so they bring Paul to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And Areopagus consisted of well, if you've ever been a high school or you're going to high school, or if you can remember way back in high school, there was this place called the Senior Quad. You guys remember that? The Senior Quad? If you were a freshman, you were not allowed to cross the Senior uh, Quad. You could, but then you'd probably, it wouldn't go well for you. Well, the Areopagus was kind of like this area, this council, this meeting of the minds, if you will. There were 30 people that made up this council. They were called the Areopagites. And it was their duty to listen to whatever thoughts and lecturers and thinkers and philosophers and religious new ideas that came up. And it was their duty to make sure that they judged every new philosophy and weighted whether or not it was reasonable or something that could be accepted in their community. And so they, here, here's Paul. He's brought to the Areopagus. That, it's, it, that's not a small thing. It's, it's a huge thing for Paul to just stand in front of the Areopagus And they say, all right, well, tell us. Tell us your new teaching. And what does Paul do? In verse 32, if you look at chapter 17, he starts preaching Jesus. And he tells them about Jesus and how though God, the creator of the universe, who cannot be formed by any human fashioning of the hands, God created each and every one of us. We are his offspring. But even though he created each and every one of us, we have gone tragically bad We thought we can find God on our own with our own intellect. You can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. You can't pursue God on your own terms. Now, how do you like that? Paul is standing in front of these intellectuals, and he says, you're not smart enough for your own salvation. You're not good enough for your own good. So these people are offended. But then he says something very, very striking, and he says, and God, the creator of the universe, whom you've rejected, whom whom you've not even sought after, he appointed this man, Jesus, And he testifies that this man, Jesus, he has been appointed, guaranteeing, essentially what Paul is saying, guaranteeing that everything I just told you is actually true. And he proved this truth by raising this Jesus from the dead. And if you look at verse 32, look how the people respond when they hear about Jesus being risen from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now put yourself in the shoes of Paul. You're all alone in the city of Athens, faced with all of these high elite intellectuals. You enter the city, you've been mocked, you've been called a babbler. You you have the heart to go into a city that doesn't know Jesus, and you want to proclaim Jesus, and you see idolatry, and, and you experience mockery, and again you experience mockery in front of the Areopagus. And from all, from all intents and purposes, as, as, as you just consider what Paul must have been thinking, he, he could have been thinking, man, that, did I fail? Did I say something wrong? What, what's going on? I, I thought maybe there were some in here that Jesus wanted to save and rescue, even though people aren't really necessarily seeking after Jesus. I thought Jesus might seek some in this city. But Paul doesn't lose heart. In fact, if you continue to read verse 32 in chapter 17... There were some who said, "Eh, I'm not sure what you're saying, Paul. Let's hear you again. So they dismiss Paul in verse 33. But then notice what happens in verse 34. It's as though Jesus was pursuing 
some in that city. In verse 34, it says, some men joined him, that's Paul, and they believed, among whom also were Dionysius. Who was Dionysius? It says that he was an Areopagite. He was one of the 30. He was one of the 30 who considered himself elite, intellectual. He stood opposed at first, and yet the Lord changed his heart. And not just him, there was a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now listen, Paul could have given up the moment he was mocked, the moment he was called a babbler. But we get the sense that as you read the text, there's, there's someone or some people that, that the Spirit of God, through the gospel message of Jesus, is seeking. And we see that right before our eyes. At least Dionysius, at least Damaris, and a few others. And so Jesus is seeking those who are not seeking him. Jesus and the gospel message steps into unusual places, and he rescues rebellious sinners who once opposed him. And so now that brings us up to Acts chapter 18. The text says in verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens, and now he goes to Corinth. Well, we got a sense of what Athens was like. It's idolatry, it's mockery, it's pseudo-intellectual philosophy. What was Corinth like? Well, Corinth was only about 40 to 45 miles away from Athens. It was a very intimidating city. If you had never traveled to Corinth ever in your lifetime and you had the opportunity to go there for the first time uh, back in the ancient uh, time frame in, in, biblical, uh, in the biblical era, it was an intimidating city. On the one hand, it was the place of business opportunity. It was culturally diverse. All kinds of people would pass through Corinth. They would conduct business. They would go uh, to Rome through Corinth. They would travel up and through Corinth to get to Athens, to and from. It brought a lot of foot traffic. The ships would sail through uh, Corinth. Um, it probably could rival New York today in terms of its economy. If you've ever been to New York and you see, you know, Wall Street and the stock market and you think of finances and whether or not the economy is booming, you have to look to New York and see how New York is doing. Well, that's kind of, in a sense, what Corinth was like. It was like the New York of that day, but it wasn't just like the New York of that day. It was also a place of, a full of pagan worship, most specifically sexual idolatry and immorality. It was as if you could take New York and then take the vilest parts of Las Vegas, bring those two cities together, blend them, and make this super mega melting pot known as Corinth. And that was Corinth. And just to give you a sense of its sexual idolatry and its immorality, Corinth actually comprised of essentially two levels it's kind of like what you see here. I'm actually elevated on a high platform, but there's another ground area where all of you are sitting. And that's what Corinth was like. In, in the lower area, all you common people, you would live and go about your day in Corinth, go through the merchants, the shops, you would conduct business, you would enjoy yourself in revelry, drinking, drunkenness, whatever, you name it, all the pleasures of your heart you can conduct. But if you made yourself available to come up to the higher ground of Corinth, known as the Acro-Corinth. It was elevated above the city. There was a giant temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And who do you think, or what do you think she represented? She was the goddess of love, sexual indulgence, impurity, and it was said that she had a thousand priestesses, and I use that term extremely loosely, because at the temple, in order for you to worship this goddess, these priestesses would engage in sexual activity with anyone and everyone that they saw. And history tells us that at night they would go down into the city and they would just prostitute themselves. And they would engage in sexual prostitution as a way to worship this goddess. It gives us a sense of what the city of Corinth was like. I mean, it, it was so rampant. If you read, if you ever read the book of First and Second Corinthians, where Paul later writes to the church, one of the things that he addresses the church on is about sexual perversion infiltrating the life of the church. It was that rampant in Corinth. Very intimidating city. Yes, it was booming economically, but it was very promiscuous. Yes, prosperous, 
from a financial standpoint, but sexually promiscuous, and it brought upon Paul great weakness. Listen, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll, you'll discover that Paul was a, he was not easily shaken, right? Like, you can go back to the city of Philippi, Paul is beaten, he's flogged, he's thrown into prison, he's left there, and then the Lord rescues him, and he comes out, and he comes out bold. Then he goes to this place in Thessalonica, the Jews, they reject his teaching, they, they form a mob, they try to kick him out of the city, he leaves the city, but man, he's bold, and he's going to continue to preach the gospel. Then he goes to Berea, and it's interesting, in Berea, these Jews, the mobs travel 30, 40 miles to try to catch him and to run him out of town. And he comes out bold. But if you want to know what he felt like entering the city of Corinth, you have to hear what he says in the letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Because the city of Corinth was like any other city that Paul had faced. He says this, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. This was a different type of city for Paul. He came in here and he was weak. Physically, he was just like, I don't know if I'm going to be strong enough. He never experienced anything like this. He was fearful and not just trembling. The text says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, much trembling. And yet Paul continues into this city. And I love what Jesus does for Paul. And I want you to see this. It's not explicitly in our text, but you have to see what the Spirit of God does to this man of God who comes with weakness, fear, and much trembling. The first thing he does is he goes to Paul, and he begins to encourage him in verse 2. Look at verse 2. So Paul is in this new city. He's by himself, his brothers, his friends, his companions. They've stood behind. And in verse 2, it says, And he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Paul went to see Aquila and Priscilla. All right, so the text introduces us to Claudius. History tells us that Claudius was a Roman emperor. Some scholars describe Claudius as having witnessed in Rome, in Italy, this infighting among the Jews, right? So back then, Christians and Jews weren't two separate groups. Christians and Jews were just seen as Jews. And so here's the emperor, Claudius, in his hometown. He's the, the Roman emperor. He sees what he thinks is an infighting among the Jews. On the one hand, the Christians are saying, Jesus is the Messiah, turn and repent. He's the one that the Old Testament has prophesied about. And on the other side, you have the classic Jews, and they're like, stop talking, stop proclaiming about this Jesus. And here's Claudius, the emperor, and he goes, will you, will you guys just stop? This is out of control. You're divisive. It's intense. In fact, he just issues a decree, and he expels the Jews, and they leave. And if you look in our text, of the people who leave, there's, there's Aquila and Priscilla. They're Jews. They were from Italy, but they were expelled. And it's curious because all of a sudden, they're in Corinth. They're a Christian married couple, and I love what Jesus does here for Paul. He begins to encourage Paul by taking him to this Christian couple. And look at verse 3. And because he, that's Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them, that's with Aquila and Priscilla, and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Now, how phenomenal is that? What Jesus does for Paul, this guy is discouraged. He comes into a city. He's, he's, he's in weakness. He's much, there's much trembling. He's fearful. And what Jesus does is he says, hey, look, a Christian married couple. They'll house you. They'll help you. They'll take care of you. And so they begin to talk. And Aquila and Priscilla are like, hey, Paul, hey, come, come here with us. Hey, what do you do for a living, Paul? <sighs> look, don't laugh. I'm a tent maker no way, me too, and it's like, what, and, and so here's Jesus bringing Paul, he could have brought them to any, any couple, but how generous, how phenomenal that Christ would bring him to a, a couple who, who they share the same commonality of tent making, if you have another translation, it says a worker of leather, 
And this is just fantastic. You see Paul beginning to become more and more encouraged as he continues to go deeper and deeper into the city. And so Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, they work on the weekdays. They uh, make tents. And in verse 4, check out what Paul does on the weekends. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The fact that he has any strength to do this shows you of Jesus' willingness to save those in that city. Because Paul, in his own strength, he admitted, I'm weak. And yet the fact that he is still preaching on the weekends in the synagogue to try to persuade Jews and Greeks after what he has just encountered, this opposition from all kinds of people uh, to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, and this tells us something about the kindness and care that Jesus had for this man. That at just the right time when Paul was all alone and discouraged, Jesus takes him to Aquila and Priscilla. He received encouragement. But notice what else Jesus does for Paul in verse 5. I love this. So it's not just Aquila and Priscilla who encourage Paul. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. So now all of a sudden, this guy who was discouraged, Paul, now Jesus brings back his closest of friends, Silas and Timothy. And they arrived, the text says, from Macedonia. And they not only arrived, but they also brought Paul financial support. I want you to look at the text. They brought him money, so much so that it freed Paul to be occupied with the word. Now, you should be looking at this text, and you should be scratching your head, and you should be asking, where did you get that from? Where does the text say that they brought Paul money? Where does the text say that once they brought Paul money, he was freed to be occupied with the word? Well, it doesn't say it in this text, but Paul later tells us, as he writes to the Corinthian church again, you see it up there on the screen in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Check out what he says. He says to the Corinthians, hey, when I was with you and was in need, and if you look at the context, he's talking about money. When I was in need, I did not burden anyone. Why not? For the brothers who came from Macedonia, who's that? Silas and Timothy. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And so, what the scriptures reveal for us is that here was a man, Paul, so discouraged, yet so willing to go into a city that did not know Jesus. But he was so discouraged, he was so weak, and yet here's Jesus, and he brings him to Aquila and Priscilla to help him, to house him, to allow him to preach on the weekends. And then all of a sudden we have Silas and Timothy who further encourages this weak man and not just encourages him by their sheer presence and friendship and companionship, but they actually bring him some money to free him up to be able to preach more freely and, 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 with, and, and with no cost to his listeners. Paul was convinced that he received the gospel at no cost. And so why should he burden the people by charging them to hear the gospel that freely changed him. And so here's Paul and Silas, and they say, hey, Paul, brother, here's some finances. I know you're a tent maker, but we want you to be devoted to the word because we're convinced that there are people in this city that God wants to save through the preaching of the word of God. And so Paul preach. And that's exactly what he does Verse 6, how would the people respond now that Paul is a full-time preacher? Look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So here's Paul. He's faithful to preach. He's preaching full time. Does Jesus want to save any from among this city, this vile city of Corinth? Does he, does he want to save anyone? 
Paul doesn't know, but he, he thinks so, and so he preaches, and he preaches full time. And notice the response. They oppose and revile him. And notice Paul's response. That's it. I'm done. Listen, I was faithful to preach, but you oppose Jesus. You revile Jesus. Hey, the blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I'm out of the synagogue, and I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, you might think, wow, that's, that's kind of unusual language, but it's actually not. It's common language. If you ever read the Old Testament, this is a, a, a common type of language that uh, the prophets of the Old would, uh, would exhibit when they were given the charge to proclaim God's message, but the people do not respond. In fact, I don't have this on the PowerPoint, but I want you to listen, or you can turn there really, really quickly if you're fast. In Ezekiel chapter 33, this is the Old Testament, and the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Ezekiel chapter 33. Because we want to find out, what does that mean, the blood be on your own heads? What is Paul saying? I think we have a picture of that in Ezekiel chapter 33. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, and God said, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood would be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. So here's, here's what God is saying. He's telling Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, look, because of the iniquities and the sins of this land, there's a sword coming, a sword of my wrath. And tell the people that if they take a watchman and they install him, and he sees the sword coming, and he blows the trumpet as a warning. God's wrath is coming. If the people do not respond, if they do not take heed, and they do not respond, and the sword comes, then the blood be on their own heads, because they did not take heed of the warning. But it goes on in verse 6, and it says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Listen, this is what Paul is doing here in the book of Acts. He's in the synagogue, and he's sounding the trumpet of God's good gospel. And if you don't turn from your sins, Paul would say, be careful. So the people respond, they oppose him, they revile him. And so Paul responds and he says, look, I was faithful to preach. I sounded a trumpet, but that's it. You need to take heed. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. So look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 18. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. How far did Paul leave the synagogue to go all the way to the Gentiles? You've got to love this. Look at verse 7 still. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's fantastic. So here's Paul. He's preaching. They revile him. They oppose him. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Gentiles. Oh, yeah, Paul, how far are you going? Next door. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. Now, Paul must have been thinking, look, I came into this intimidating, this, in, this formidable city in weakness, fear, much trembling. I sounded the trumpet. I'm going next door. <sighs> Blood be on their heads. But then the scriptures reveal that Jesus was doing something in that synagogue that perhaps Paul wasn't even aware of. Check out what Jesus did to the heart of a man by the name of Crispus. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, look what happened to him. He believed in the Lord, and it wasn't just him. Together with his entire household, 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. How do you like that? Here's Paul. He shook his garments. I'm done with the Jewish people. I'm leaving the synagogue. I'm done. I'm going to the Gentiles. But then all of a sudden, he looks back at the synagogue. Oh, wow. Jesus saved someone, and not just someone, the ruler of the synagogue. He wasn't just your typical churchgoer. He was the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saved some of those that opposed and reviled him. Crispus, he believed, and wait, his entire household, and many of the Corinthians. It's incredible. And Paul, as he recounts this story, this account, he writes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. And he writes them, and he says, Look, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Paul baptized Crispus. He says, Look, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. Now, verse 16, senior has, uh, Paul has a senior moment here. He says, look, I didn't baptize anyone, and then, you know, his old age kicks in, and he goes, well, well, okay, hold on, okay, I did baptize also the household of Stephan, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, but what's the point, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and notice what he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, of course not. He was scared. He was weak. He was fearful. There was much trembling. He had no eloquent words. He was just faithful to sound the trumpet, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul remained faithful to preach, and now here he is. He's still in Sin City. He's at Titus Justice's house, and the question that you should be asking yourself is, should he continue Should he continue to go into this great city? Does Jesus still want to draw men to himself from within this kind of uh, city that is full of sinners, rebels, idolaters, sexual, immorals? Look at verse 9. I love what Jesus does for Paul here. Remember, he brought to him Aquila and Priscilla, then Silas and Timothy. The man was discouraged, but now look who shows up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, So now Jesus shows up, and notice how he encourages Paul. I told you he was afraid because look what Jesus tells him. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What does Jesus tell him? Stay faithful, Paul. Keep preaching. Keep sounding the trumpet. Why? Why should Paul be faithful? Look at verse 10 you'll find three reasons in verse 10. Number one, Jesus says, for I am with you. Talks about his presence. Number two, no one will attack you to harm you. He's talking about his own, his protection of Paul. And number three, for I have many in this city who are my people. Predestination. Hey, Paul, Stay faithful. Keep going into this city. I know it doesn't look that like there are those who I'm going to draw out for myself, but I've already chosen some, Paul, and you will wake them up by the proclamation of the gospel. And notice how that fueled Paul to stay faithful in Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half. Again, notice in verse 10, Jesus promises his presence. I am with you. Jesus was with him. In fact, David in the book of Psalms would later say, or earlier would say, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. This is exactly what Jesus tells Paul. Paul, do not fear. Why? Because I'm with you. My presence is with you. Why else should Paul stay faithful? Again, look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus tells him that he will protect him. No one will attack you to harm you. In other words, Jesus says, Paul, your life is in my hands. Nothing will happen to you that is not within my control. Paul, I will sustain you. This is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples earlier. He gives them an example. He says, hey, guys, look. 
Look at the bird. Look at the sparrow. Yeah, those sparrows are cheap, but you know what? Not one of those sparrows will fall to the ground unless the Father wills it. What's the point there? No Christian will die a second sooner than they were supposed to. He will protect you to the end. He determines that end, and the end never comes too soon or too late. It always comes at the right appointed time because God has our lives in his hands. And so Jesus tells Paul, keep speaking, be faithful. Why else should you stay faithful, Paul, in this city? Jesus tells him, because of providence, because of predestination. Now, he says, I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard a major objection to this doctrine of predestination. Anytime someone stands up from the pulpit and they utter the words predestination, you've got you've to start believing that there's some among the, uh, the, 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 the gathering who are like, oh, wow, did he just say the big P from the pulpit? I thought that's a small group conversation. No, it's a biblical conversation, so we're just going to talk about it. And here is Jesus, and he tells Paul, hey, look, I know you're scared, but go in the city. You want to know why? I got people there. Otherwise, if I didn't have people there, don't go. But I do have people there, Paul. You don't know who they are. There's no E for elect or C for chosen, but you wake them up by sounding the trumpet of the gospel of Jesus because I have many people in that city. Go, Paul. See, predestination is not a deterrent. It's the fuel for preaching the gospel. We don't look at predestination and say, what's the point? God chose why should I speak? No, that's human logic. Biblical logic says, because God has chosen, go and speak. Because God has some in that city, sound the trumpet. It's not a deterrent. It actually motivates Paul. He stays there for a year and a half, and he came in with fear and trembling and weakness, and now Jesus says, go in that city. My heart is for the city. Go, Paul. Go. In fact, that's what Jesus tells his disciples, right, in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's sovereignty is the fuel for Paul's faithfulness to preach. It's not a deterrent for hard work and sacrifice. If you see this doctrine as a deterrent for preaching, oh, why should I bother? Then you're misunderstanding it. Don't even bother if you think that God has not chosen some because you will never convince them by your own human intellect but because we are convinced that God has his heart for some of the people in that city, go preach. We see that, don't we? I'll read it again in verse 9. You see it right there in Acts chapter 18. Jesus says, go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? I am with you. No one will attack you. I have many in this city who are my people. That's your fuel, Paul. Work hard. In fact, Paul would later write Timothy, and he tells them, I'm going to work hard because of the elect. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, I endure. That's a strong word. I work hard, man. I sacrifice. I toil. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so Paul, because he's convinced that God has chosen some from that city, that becomes his fuel to preach, and no wonder it ends the way that it does in verse 11. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So that's our text. I want us to pull out three quick key points. They're either explicitly stated in the text or implicitly stated. You can pull this out of the text. You can see it clearly if you look for it. I'm not trying to do any trickery here. I think you'll see it. I think it's very, very loud and clear. Key point number one, Jesus saves. Would you agree? He saved some in Athens. That place was full of idolatry. Paul was provoked. He experienced mockery. Jesus saved some in Corinth a place full of the worst kinds of sin. Corinth was, a, was full of people who were self-seeking, self-pleasing, self-advancing. Its sin ran so deep. 
just to give you an idea of how bad the city of Corinth actually was, I would describe them as being sexually immoral, idolaters, prostitutes. They practiced homosexuality. They were adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, doing whatever they could to fill that gaping hole of gratification, of purpose, of meaning, but they would always come up empty, ending up miserable, feeling shame, and more importantly, incurring on them the condemnation of God's wrath. Now you might say, where did you get that from the text? Well, look what Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, look what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jesus saves. There is no sin so grievous of which Jesus can't forgive. And he steps into the city and he sees that the place is full of sin. And he washes them, cleanses them. They repent and believe. book of Psalm in chapter 32 verse 1 says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Have your transgressions been forgiven? If yes, then you are blessed and you're cleansed and the deep accusation that stood against you is removed. But listen very carefully. If your sins have not been forgiven, you stand condemned, not blessed. I am sounding the trumpet like Paul. You can escape the sword of God's wrath that your iniquities deserve by turning to Jesus. If your sins have not been forgiven, then I would encourage you, take heed of this trumpet call. God created you in his image to know him, to desire him, to seek him, though he was not far off. But in your rebellion, you tragically forsook him, you did not seek him, and you went your own way, lost, alone, condemned. But the scripture says, but God, because of his great mercy, sent Jesus who came to seek and save the lost so that you who were once lost would be found, that your guilt would be pardoned. Paul tells the Corinthians, Jesus took your place of punishment when he died on the cross in your place for your sins to bring you and draw you near to God. So if your sins have not been forgiven, I would ask, why not? Respond to the trumpet call. Take heed, lest the blood be on your own heads. Will you be like Crispus this morning who believed in the Lord? Will you be like one from his household? Will you be like one of the Corinthians who once stood opposed to Jesus, but upon hearing the gospel, they were transformed and believed in Jesus? I don't know who you are, but dear friend, I hope you listen to the gracious invitation of this trumpet call that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So point number one, Jesus saves. Point number two from this text, Jesus sustains. Remember what he promised Paul, his presence, protection, his providence. 
And didn't we see Jesus prove his faithfulness time and time again, especially when Paul needed him most? He was in Athens. He was by himself. He was provoked in his spirit because of the idolatry. He was mocked as a babbler. He was dismissed as a lowly, false intellectual. And then here comes Jesus, encourages him, brings him to Corinth, the most unlikeliest of places to receive encouragement, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, Timothy, and then Jesus shows up. At just the right time, Jesus reveals himself in a vision. He says, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in the city who are my people. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, Paul, I know you're afraid, but you need to remember I'm always with you. Even if you walk through the valley, I'm always with you. It's no wonder that having understood Jesus' faithfulness to him on more than one occasion, Paul would later write to the Corinthians and he would exhort them. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul would write the church and, and he would say, wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So point number two, Jesus sustains. Yes, he saves, but he also sustains. And so point number three, let us stay faithful. Paul didn't see much fruit at first, did he? In Athens, he didn't. He was called a babbler. In Corinth, he didn't. He shook his garments from the outside, at least, it looked that his ministry in the Jewish synagogue was a failure. But it wasn't. Not because that Crispus was converted, although that's amazing. But his ministry wasn't a failure. You know why? Because he was faithful to preach. He sounded the trumpet. And I think this is important for us to understand here this morning. Paul didn't base his ministry on outcomes and, met and metrics. Listen, for someone who works in ministry, for someone who works in business, it's so tempting to base our success on metrics that we have set up. Did this many people come today? Did that many people give? Was I successful? Was I clear enough? Was the song loud enough? How were the knobs turned? Did I make enough money this month? And we judge our success based off these metrics. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Be faithful to preach. You see, at the end of your life, Jesus warns us, you will not hear, well done, good and successful servant. You will not hear, well done, good and fruitful servant. You won't even hear, well done, good and strong servant. At the end of your life, what Jesus would encourage us to lean into is to hear the words from him that say, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's not well done. Look how strong you were. Look, the Christian life is hard. It's hard. It's hard, especially if you got four kids. And the oldest is seven and the youngest is two. It's hard. Me and my wife, every now and then, I feel like the days are getting longer from when we do these things, but we have home church. I'm pastor daddy. She's teacher mommy. We open up the Bible. We gather the kids. We put them on the couch. They listen for about eight seconds. And then all H breaks loose. And they're running on the couches. They're running up the walls. And I'm not saying that figuratively. I mean, they're literally running up the walls. And it's hard. And sometimes we just want to give up. And we're like... Is it nap time yet? No, it's only four in the afternoon. Stay faithful. Me and my wife, we would look at each other and we say, we're on, we're on to something. This isn't easy. It's hard. But success isn't measured by how long Caleb sits in his chair. It's whether or not we were faithful to preach. And so church, stay faithful. Look, I don't know what you're going through, but I... I I know that the Christian life is hard. The place where you go to school, I know it's hard. Where you work, I know it's hard. The relationships that you have, whew, those are hard. And sometimes we base our success in all of those things. Am I getting back what I put in? Now listen, stay faithful. Are you being faithful? I want to speak to two groups that are here this morning. The first group 
life is going exceedingly well for you. Congratulations. There's not much turmoil that you can point to. There's not a whole lot of adversity. You're feeling quite good. You're weird. In fact, everything seems to be on the up and up. Career-wise, you're in a good place. Academically, you're excelling. Relationally, you've got all the friends and affections that you need. Strangely enough, your kids seem to be doing okay. But the question is, are you being faithful? Are you being faithful? Well, look, man, my life is going great. Wait, hold on. Are you being faithful? I love what Kevin DeYoung says, one of my favorite pastors. He says this, sometimes the severest test is not the test of adversity, but the test of prosperity. Do you keep running hard after God or do you get complacent? Stay faithful. And then there's a second group. You know you're part of that second group because your life is not a shooting star. Life is hard. You feel like you don't know what to do, like you're the only one. You're struggling with guilt. There's not a whole lot of clarity as to where you're at, how you got here, where am I going? Marriage is hard. My relationships, hard. Kids, hard. The job, hard. School, hard. Ministry, hard. Life, hard. And my question to you is, but are you faithful? Are you being faithful? There are times where you say, Lord, I just don't know what else to do. I don't know what to do with my kids. I don't know what to do with my boss. I don't know what to do in this career path that I'm on. I don't even know how I got here. Where am I going? I don't know what to do. Don't give up. I know what you're going through. I don't know exactly all the details, but I know the kind of weight that you're probably carrying this morning. I know I have them too. Paul had them too. And it's in that space where Jesus steps in and he says, stay faithful. Church, don't compromise your faith in our Lord Jesus. Don't give up. Continue to sound the trumpet. Stay faithful even when it's hard. Remember his presence, that he is always with you. He is faithful to save you from sin, and he is faithful to sustain you through life's difficulties. Amen? Let me wrap up with a prayer.